You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Jimmy Gooderman, editor for Release 2.0, goes on the record online. Any marketer who is trying to justify his or her fee is, in fact, trying to manage a conversation, trying to run a conversation, trying to steer the conversation. Um, People who are actually interested in listening to what's happening on the other side are not engaging in the the art of marketing. They're, They're engaged in something else, and it may be something more interesting and maybe something you know more like a, a real conversation between people but when i hear marketers say what we really want to do is facilitate conversations what they really mean is we really want there to be the appearance of a conversation in which we have the first word the middle word and the last word thanks for downloading this episode of on the record online uh, today we're talking to jim guterman he is the editor of a really cool new publication called uh, release 2.0 uh, it very interesting. They just released their second issue in April of seven, so they're on their third issue now. Um, he's been writing. Jimmy has been writing about um, new media and social media. Um, well, social media hasn't been around for nearly as long as he's been writing about technology. Uh, he's been writing about it for decades. I think about twenty five years, and is really an interesting guy and really articulate. So I think you're going to enjoy hearing what he has to say. He recently um, was the event chair of a conference in Beverly Hills called um, Economics of Social Media, which was absolutely a who's who of new media and social media. It was so packed that they sold out, and um, the panels were just really, I mean, the biggest names in the space. Uh, Everybody was there. And we talk a lot about that. We also talk about some of the ideas that they introduced in their April 07 issue. I think you'll find it really interesting um, because uh, he really understands the space. Um, If this is your first time listening, this is uh, the podcast where we do in-depth one-on-ones with journalists from the mainstream media as well as Conversations, uh, conversations with bloggers, podcasters, and newsmakers about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the mainstream media business as we know it. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman, founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation. If you are a new listener and you're not sure what that is, uh, we have a service that you log into over the over the internet in a browser, and you can basically point and click your way through a, an online dashboard that lets you email market, search engine optimize. Um, manage content online, uh, serve up RSS feeds, manage blogs, manage podcasts, uh, manage video on demand, audio on demand, really everything you think about um, in the Web 2.0 space, uh, which most people do by kind of cobbling together a loose affiliation of these sort of free services. We have all that integrated into one service and um, a lot of really big uh, companies using it, you know, Fortune 100 companies on the platform. So if you're interested in checking it out, you can go to www.ipressroom.com forward slash visible. I'm also personally and professionally fascinated uh, at how the shift in in media consumption is impacting business and, and business communications. Um, it's it's my hobby to follow it. I just love it. Um, I'm I'm totally enthralled by uh, this transformation that we're going through right now. Um, we also built a new podcast website. 
at www.ontherecordpodcast.com. And it's got a lot of new features. And so if you're listening to the program, uh, I ask you, please, go to the site and sign the Frapper map. Let us know where you are. Um, we see, you know, people that when, when you hit the site and visit the site, it automatically puts a dot where you are. So we see, like, listeners on there for two weeks or people visiting the site on there for two weeks because it only retains the, ta- the dot on the map for two weeks if you don't sign it. Really all over the world, Southeast Asia, uh, uh, Middle East, uh, we're seeing listeners in Scandinavia, in uh, Western and Eastern Europe, um, in uh, Northern Africa, um, in Australia. You know, we see a few in South America and unfortunately, you know, very few, really none in uh, sub-Saharan Africa other than South Africa. But, um, you know, we want to make this show interesting to you. We want to cover things that are interesting to our listeners. You know, the reason that I interviewed uh, Matthias Lufkins, who's the media manager for the Economic World Forum, where they have the, uh, the Davos Convention, was because there are so many European listeners, and because I'm generally interested in that, and so I figured, why not focus on that? But I want to focus on things that are interesting to all the listeners all, all around the world, but I can't do that if I don't know where you are. So I ask you, if you're listening, please. Go to www.ontherecordpodcast.com. Just click on the map, sign it. You can put up a photo. You don't have to. You can put up a little, you know, icon, whatever you want. Just give me your name um, and and tell us where you are, so that we can focus this program so it's interesting to your geography as well. Um, also, um, you know, there's place you you can leave comments on on any of the um, podcasts that are there, um, and we want to know. I mean. Is it working? Is it not working? Do you like what we're talking about? Don't you like what we're talking about? Please give us some feedback. Uh, we're doing this for you, and uh, we, we want to make sure that we're, we're on target. But we don't know that unless you talk back to us. So you can either um, uh, po- post a comment to the blog, send me an email to eric at ontherecordpodcast.com, or send us an audio comment, and uh, you know we'll play it. And if you're looking for a job, send us your resume. Uh, we are one of a few firms out there integrating best practices in mainstream public relations and new media communications um, to offer clients message consistency, you know, to, to sort of avoid uh, message fracture, um, both online and offline. So we're sort of looking at communications not just from, you know, a mainstream standpoint, but from a multi-channel sphere. How can we make sure that we're getting the word out, not just for our clients online, but how can we make sure that we're also giving uh, those that those that interact with those touch points and those messages, the opportunity to engage in some sort of a transaction via the web. Um, and if that's something you're interested in, and if you have new media communication skills, we definitely want to hear from you. Um, so send me your resume to eric at ontherecordpodcast.com. Uh, thanks so much for listening to my preamble. And now we're going to play for you the interview with Jimmy Guterman, editor of Release 2.0. It comes to you, as always, entirely unedited uh, after these friendly words. Thanks. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Jimmy Gutterman, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. 
Now, you were recently involved with this sold-out conference called the Economics of Social Media, which took place in Los Angeles. What was the big takeaway for you? What, what did you learn? Um, I learned that the industry is really exciting and that it's also really, really young. It was a, it was a delightful conference because we were able to get folks from a, a lot of different companies um, at the level that we wanted. Um, I think a lot of that is due to the sort of the enormous goodwill that Rafat Ali and Stacey Kramer, the you know the the king and queen of of paid content, have the goodwill that they have within the industry. Um, what was fascinating for me most of all was how how new so much of so much of this is. You know, I am a a journalist and supposed to be well versed, but I learned a lot there. So um, I hope that that uh, that was the case for other people too. I hope I wasn't the only dummy who learned something that day. What surprised you? I mean, what 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 did you get out of it that you didn't think you'd get out of it? Um, the most interesting moment for me was in, during one of the breakout panels after lunch was the uh, the music industry one, and you know, needless to say, the music industry has been. You know, turned upside down, decimated, whatever you want to say, by the uh, by the advent of the age of social media. Um, but I wanted to learn. I asked a question about how the A and R function, the sort of talent scout function, um, has changed as a result of there being ten zillion MySpace pages or Facebook pages or whatever. And Josh Deutsch, who runs Downtown Recordings, one of the people on the panel. And he said something that fascinated me, which is that he felt that the A&R function was really the one part of the music industry that hasn't changed. Um, everything about distribution is different. Everything about the value proposition is different. But the simple act of identifying and securing new talent, he didn't see that as all that different. And, you know, they've got, you know, Gnarls Barkley, one of the, one of the you know really new, very much uh, internet broken artists, um, and it was very interesting to hear that from him. So it was interesting for me to see what has changed and actually what has not changed. And what advice specifically did you glean from people in the know? You think that would be useful to companies who are looking to be acquired? Be bold. Everyone right now is trying to say, what can we do to make. Uh, you know, it's usually one of three or four companies, you know, Google, Yahoo, uh, Microsoft, you know, doing the things that they want to do that will make them sellable. And if you actually look at the uh, the companies that have been bought, um, it's not because they prepared themselves um, to fit into some sort of pre-existing portfolio, because they did something interesting that was different from what other companies were, uh, were doing. So I think it's sort of a, just a classic, be bold, be different, surprise us. And uh, apparently there was a panel of C-level execs who agreed that the rules have changed for getting deals funded. Um, how so? Well, I, I don't want to try to summarize an hour-long uh, <laughs> hour session in one answer, but I think that what it comes down to is that there's a greater level of transparency than ever before, and I think that because of that, the way in which companies um, seek deals, manage deals, try to get out of deals, they are very different from before when there wasn't, uh, you know, valley wag following your every move. 
So now, um, a lot of people look at the MySpace acquisition as being an example of how to do it right. Um, yeah, that was definitely the consensus from the uh, from the event, and it wasn't just the people on the News Corp payroll who were saying that. You know, they were folks from other networks who were very uh, very impressed by it. What about YouTube? What's the consensus on that? Well, it's it's a lot earlier. Um, it was a much younger company, and there are you know significantly more kind of logistical and legal hurdles that Google has to. Uh, has to get through. Um, you know, there's a there's some of that with uh, with MySpace, but nothing at that level with YouTube. And I think that when anything is purchased or integrated into Google, you know, the amount of attention that um, rivals marketing departments and rivals legal departments give it um, is just much higher. So um, when you obviously you are presiding over a lot of discussion about business models. How is the social media, if at all, business model different from traditional media business models? Oh, gosh, that's one of those questions where you can ask 20 people and get at least 30 different answers, because I think that social media is such a broad, broad term, you know, something that can include, you know, things as diverse as, you know, Twitter and YouTube, uh, that I think it would be, it would be too facile for, for me to suggest that there's a there are there are three rules that make it different. It's not like that at all. Each company has uh, has its own different ways of uh, going around things. Are there developing business models that that you see sort of germinating now um, that you perhaps became aware of at the conference? Um, that I became aware of at the conference, no. But I think that just an observation would be that so many of the uh, of the large media companies that have bet on a variety of different business models to get them through. You know, at one point, AOL was the envy of everyone because they had a, you know, a, a big monthly subscription business. That business is going away. Um, similarly, um, the, the cable companies are, are, are losing on their, their subscription model than before. I, but I see right now what's happening is the vast majority of companies run by really smart people are saying, well, you want to know? It's all advertising. So we have to figure out how to put advertising into everything, and then suddenly everything will be good. It sounds very much like what people were saying 10 years ago, that only, if we only had a, a monthly stream of income like a subscription stream of income like AOL had, we'd be just fine. It seems as if all the bets are being placed on one side of the table right now, so the business models that I, as an observer, would be most interested in at this point were those that are not not advertising-based. Well, beyond advertising, beyond subscription, how else might social media companies generate revenue? Well, it, it's part of services. I mean, the um, the excitement of social media is that it sort of replicates and exaggerates online what happens in person. You know, the this event I went to was sold out. You know, when I went to any other event, you know, when I went to TED recently, you know, there are there are almost as many people on the waiting list to get in than um, than were actually allowed in. So something similar is happening with the D conference in uh, in Carlsbad next month. Actually, it's this month already. Later this month, and. Uh, I think what this means is that there's still a great, great desire for the in-person, for the live, 
and I think that that's something that you can't put a uh, can't put an advertising wrapper around. If I want to, you know, network with you at an event, it's not going to be with a uh, our conversation is not going to be sponsored by Pepsi Cola. So I, I think that as many things have changed, there are also a number of things that have really stayed the same. And what has stayed the same is really the need, you know, the necessity and the the, predomin- the, the preeminence of face-to-face contact. You use the word conversation. What is conversational marketing? Um, it's a term that marketers came up with that doesn't really mean anything. Why? Why not? Why doesn't mean? Why doesn't participating in a dialogue have meaning? Because any marketer who any marketer who is trying to justify his or her fee is in fact trying to manage a conversation, trying to run a conversation, trying to steer the conversation. Um, people who are actually interested in listening to what's happening on the other side are not engaging in the the art of marketing. They're they're engaged in something else, and it may be something more interesting and maybe something you know more like a, a real conversation between people but when i hear marketers say what we really want to do is facilitate conversations what they really mean is we really want there to be the appearance of a conversation in which we have the first word the middle word and the last word why is it important to listen to the people you're trying to reach um, because then you don't end up with movies like Sahara that someone decided was good to spend several hundred million dollars on, but nobody figured out that people would not want to see it at all. And if you are listening, how do you take advantage of that intelligence? How how can that intelligence be integrated back into an organization so that it actually has value? I think it starts with humility. Um, I think it starts with accepting that your audience knows your product or your service better than you do. And I think that's a really hard thing for people, for in, you know, really intelligent people who uh, build products and services for a living to accept. Um, you know, if you look at so many web services, people don't use them in the way that, uh, that they thought they were, they were going to be used, whether it's a, a cell phone or IM or whatever. You know, these are things that were created because they thought there was a business need for them. It turned out there was a much greater sort of social and personal need for them. So you really need to, f- to watch how people are using or not using your product or service rather than saying, hmm, how can we direct them to use it? Uh, let me um, ask you a question about reputation. Um, do you think reputation is becoming uh, less about opinion and more about evidence? And uh, I guess, uh, you know, taking a leap off from that, uh, are, are the Nielsen paper diaries evidence with or without certainty? Um, I'm not familiar enough with, with, uh, with how Nielsen's works to, to comment on that. But in terms of reputation as sort of a more general thing, again, I think we're looking at all these new tools that we get in terms of social media. Um, if, uh, if I meet someone at a conference... Um, you know, let's say I meet someone at a social media conference who represents himself as being one person. It really doesn't take long for me to, whether it's via search engine or some other source, to find out very quickly if this person is legitimate, if this person is who he says he is. And I think that we're going to see over time a a more sort of (laughs) fact-based presentation of oneself 
or if there's going to be a uh, a non-factual base, it'll be more uh, it'll be more consistent across uh, sources. I mean, I I know uh, a number of people who uh, who have met people you know more you know for personal reasons than uh, than business reasons, and then they uh, they Google the person and and find out hmm, maybe this isn't exactly who he or she said she was. Now, you're also editor of Release 2.0, which is a right. new publication, and uh, in the April 07 issue, um, uh, one of the articles posited a connection between Web 2.0 connectivity and the fluidity of, 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 of markets, of like Wall Street. Can well, the two sets of markets explain do, that to us? What does that mean? Well, the two sets of markets really do have a lot to teach each other. Let me. What's a good example? Um, in, uh, in financial markets, the thing that an investor needs more than anything else is liquidity. You know, liquidity is what allows you to to get out of a bad position quickly if you have to. In many ways, sort of the liquidity of the Web 2.0 world is connectivity. Um, that uh, connectivity is like what what the uh, the experts used to say about liquidity is that you don't really need it all the time, but when you need it, you really, really need it. And it's the same thing that you can talk to someone who's trying to engage with a web application or whatever. Um, and not to have connectivity. So you know, you're dealing with sort of the scarcity of uh, resources. You're also dealing with um, an environment in which latency is very, very important. Um, you know, you are in a, a world right now where if you do any sort of trading, um, there's always going to be someone a millisecond faster than you. And that it's in those little spaces that the money's being made. Similarly, um, the Web, web 2.0 is built on you know, on on the the promise of speed. So, I'm just sort of giving you, you sort of skim the surface examples there, but there's a lot that the two markets are starting to learn from each other, and we are hoping that release 2.0 is really sort of an early warning, uh, a little radar for uh, for people about upcoming trends, and we wanted to just take a quick look at uh, where it is right now. How do you define Web 2.0? Um, I, I don't. I think it's a, it's an um, it's an umbrella term for a number of a number of trends. Um, and right now, it's, the term I think is used more in business plans than in actual description of product or services. Um, with respect to uh, the um, excitement uh, amongst advertisers to capitalize on these social media platforms, um, how, how does one maintain? an advertiser-friendly environment uh, when content is consumer-generated? Um, I think that if you are worried about making your user-generated content advertising-friendly, you, you're almost inevitably going to make it so friendly that you'll actually never get an audience. Um, we can see what's happening in, in Second Life as an example of that right now, the virtual world Second Life, and that there is a, there's an enormous amount of um, marketing activity. You, you could have had your uh, taxes done by H&R Block in-game if you wanted to. Can't imagine why, but it was out there. Um, but if you go there, it's actually fairly uh, bereft of people. But there are all these stores that are open. Um, if you build a service that is more for the marketers than for the people who you actually hope to use it, you'll wind up with a world like like Second Life, which is not very well-traveled, but has plenty of stores. What about the recent dig controversy? I mean, do, 
you know, here is obviously a, a, a social media site that's got a very loyal following, highly trafficked, and they had um, problems after they lifted a post containing this HD DVD encryption key, uh, actually just last week, and actually wound up removing the uh, the post, the story uh, that got dug from the site. Right. Um, I mean, do, do, why do you think, speculating, why would, you, why would they do something like that? Well, I think that what's interesting is how it sort of ended up, where after they took it down, they decided to put it back up. Um, and not only did they put it back up, but they put it back up with a pretty broad, uh, a pretty lovely broadside about how if we're going to go down, this is what we need, need to be going down about, um, you know, going down for something that matters. And that was delightful. I think in terms of it going down and coming back up, um, I would not get too freaked out by that. Um, I think it's just elements of growing pains of a uh, of a, a fast-growing, very exciting site in which the governance hasn't caught up to the needs of the uh, of the users, and that says more about the the speed and intensity with which it's growing than anything else. So, one way to look at it is, um, you know, we mentioned the idea of this you know, advertiser-friendly environment, and uh, you know, regardless of those in the know or not, advertisers certainly are are interested in putting their name on top of something that is not going to be perceived as highly controversial. What about VC-funded startups? Do you foresee a day when uh, VC ownership may actually um, push uh, a technology upstart in the social media space to um, act in a way that they see as uh, perhaps VC-friendly? Well, or- VCs have always had an inordinate amount of, uh, of impact on what businesses uh, startups concentrate on and what they don't. I'm not, maybe I'm not understanding the question. I don't see how this would be, the world of social media would be any different. Well, because as you said, the, the, uh, in many cases, the law hasn't caught up with, um, with governing these types of activities in this space. So it's, it's you know, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act uh, certainly, you know, is not adequate to, to govern uh, types of scenarios we're seeing enacted uh, in social media and on the web. So, obviously, a VC with a significant amount of capital uh, has to protect that capital from any legal peril. So, they see perhaps an investment in a social media startup as a liability from a legal standpoint. Um, does that, you know, potentially um, provoke some sort of Action from from the company that's inordinate with. No, I, I doubt that. I think VCs have a, a very rich and checkered history of uh, not getting involved with legal problems that affect a company. You know, don't forget that even Napster had no problem getting funding. You know, even understanding what the risks were. I think that VCs are. You know, VCs have one goal which is to, you know, maximize their investment. And if dealing with some legal issues is just, uh, for them, I think it's just a bump at the road. Final question. Uh, we often hear social media or social media platforms referred to as um, harnessing the collective hive mind of the web or uh, um, harnessing the, the social, you know, the wisdom of the crowd. But, um, you know, just to play devil's advocate, if you look back through history, um, you know, 
that's often that's also referred to as mob rule. And uh, as we've seen in, in many instances politically in the past, uh, that didn't always lead to the best decisions. So, um, you know, given given that point of view, I mean, do you think that the, what are the dangers of social media? Well, I, I think that, you know, what one person's mob is another person's democracy. So I would not uh, I, I would not assume that. You know, ten thousand people are going to be any less dumb than five people who are normally making those same decisions. Um, I think that with anything where there is a mass audience involved, there is a how would you put it? There is there is a sort of uh, sanding off of the edges. I mean, if you look at network television or something that's ba- that that is built on a model of having ten millions tens of millions of people watching it at the same time, you tend not to have um, you tend not to have what you would call sort of edgy work or edgy entertainment. You know, a show like a like a Twin Peaks is a uh, is, is an aberration. It's not the rule. You tend to have you know happy friendly sitcoms or something like that. And I don't know why that would be any different if people were sort of voting in a different way online than the way they vote for, uh, for, you know, for or against TV shows right now. Um, I think that, you know, the more people that get involved, you get two things going on. You get, on the positive side, you know, more intelligence. All of us know more than some of us. Um, But on the other side, you do then have to deal with consensus. And I think that when you get to consensus, and consensus is what programmers will put on a TV show or what they'll put in the movie theater or whatever, um, you will get, you know, entertainment that is built to be enjoyed by the most number of people, and that tends to, you know, not not make for smarter product. I said it was the last question, but I, based on your response, I'd like to just follow up with one more question and it's it's probably more a stream of consciousness and i'd be very interested to see if you can probably help me tame it um there seems to be a good deal of controversy on the blogosphere about um the idea of someone as you said well a marketer that wants to control the conversation also the idea of someone that's in public relations um representing a, 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 a an organization's point of view in a social media environment often that's seen as 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 wrong and it's it's unappreciated by the community um but then you look at uh, like the editorial page of a publication like the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal and clearly these editorials are written in first person as though they are an individual's point of view but they're created as a result of group consensus um and i guess where i'm going with this is often you know a marketer or a public relations person's job is to carry forth the opinion of a group consensus but um, because the blogosphere is seen as an environment where it should be the individual's point of view, uh, it's often, you know, mistaken as um, as uh, as a, a, a bunch of you know poppycock. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that publicists, just like the rest of us, have a uh, have a right to speak. Um, I think that the the great concern online is when they are not when there's not clear disclosure of who they are, who's paying who's paying for them being there, etc. I think that as, as long as there's a there's sort of a clear disclosure, I I, I don't see any problem. 
Jimmy Gutterman, editor of Release 2.0. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. 